morning. All right. My notes are still here. My water remains. The clicker works. I think we'll be okay. I want to thank the elders for the privilege of being able to bring a lesson to you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us or, or don't know me, uh, my name is Ray Frederick. I'm a deacon here, not a normal um, pulpit minister. So if you're visiting, and don't make me a reason you don't come back. <laughs> so just, but I am more than happy to fill in. Uh, as Steve mentioned during the scripture reading today, uh, there was a, a swap of the texts that we were going to read. And there were a couple reasons for that. As I was reflecting on my lessons, uh, it's actually the afternoon sermon that I developed first when I told the elders that I had an idea for a, a sermon. And then this one uh, came later. And as I was preparing these sermons and trying to think about the most effective delivery and, and my audience, uh, this first sermon with Haggai that uh, I hope you find edifying, it's more inward focused. It's going to give us an opportunity to reflect on ourselves a little bit and I hope challenge you as we look at the text there. Uh, and then this afternoon sermon that I want to invite you back to hear is a lesson that's a little more focused on what's going on outside around us in the world. Uh, we'll talk a little bit, uh, we'll touch a little bit on politics, a little bit on technology, and, and I hope when you leave this afternoon, if you join us, uh, that you have cause for hope when you go out in your, in your life to encourage those around you to turn to the Lord. Now, as we look at Haggai today, you know, it's difficult sometimes for us, I, I think, to understand something that was written you know, nearly 2,500 years ago. Actually, I think it was 2,538, so I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, really old text, it's sometimes difficult for us to understand what all is happening in that. So I want to spend some time this morning talking about the context of Haggai. We'll look at how the text is organized. We'll look at who's speaking, who the audience was. We'll try to understand their history, uh, where they're at locally and politically. And then once we've done that, spend some time looking at the text itself. We'll read the first chapter today, talk about uh, what the Israelites were experiencing, what they were thinking, and then finally make some application for ourselves. Because I do believe that even though these texts are ancient, there is a message for each and all, every one of us uh, that we can apply and, and live in our lives. And so without further delay, uh, Haggai is a very simple book. It's only two chapters, and it's made up of five messages. Four of those messages, we actually have the exact date that they were recorded. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, there's an initial message and the people's response in the first 12 verses. In the last three verses of the first chapter, there's a second message and the people's response. And then the second chapter is a little bit different. We're not going to touch on the second chapter today. But the second chapter has three additional messages and not the same kind of response from the people. There's a little more uh, symbolic imagery it might be a little more cryptic and more difficult to, uh, to understand. So we're just going to focus on chapter 1. Now, when we're reading the text in a moment, you'll uh, find that the, the year is established by uh, King Darius, and there's certain days of certain months of certain years. We're actually able to adapt that uh, Persian calendar and, uh, and Hebrew records to our modern calendar. And so we know that... The first message was received on August 29th and presented. The second message was recorded. This is the one we don't have an exact date for. 
uh, was recorded sometime between August 29th and September 21st. The third message, October 17th, the fourth and fifth, both on December 18th, 2,538 years ago. Now, as we're reading the passage, uh, here are the names you're going to hear. There is going to be son of this person and, and different offices, but there's really only four main people. As I mentioned earlier, Darius will be used not as a figure in the story, but just as a reference in time. Uh, the main figures are Haggai. He's our Lord's mouthpiece. He's going to deliver the message to the people. Then there is Zerubbabel, the governor, the political leader of the province of uh, Judah, where Jerusalem is located. Then there's Joshua, the high priest. This is not the Joshua who led the people into the promised land. We'll look at a timeline in a minute. I know it's when we hear names again, sometimes we uh, make mistakes or, or get our associations a little twisted, and I just wanted to make that clear. And then finally, the, the primary audience, the remnant or the people who are living in Jerusalem at this time. Now, to understand why we have a governor and not a king and a remnant and not a large mass of people, we have to look at a timeline. And I know this is too small for you all to read. Uh, I just wanted to show you that, you know, we've got David and Solomon over here with the monarchy, and we're all the way over here with Haggai, some 500 years nearly uh, later, 450 or so. So a lot of time has passed, and the Israelites have endured a great deal. First off, the kingdom was divided from that high water point. Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians. Effectively, those tribes uh, were lost. Judah was carried off into captivity by Babylon, and they've been in exile for about 50 years. Well, why has all of this happened to the nation? Persistent disobedience. Time and time again, uh, God warned them. Time and time again, God sent prophets. And time and time again, the people ignored that. And ultimately, they paid the consequences for that in their exile. But there is cause for hope. And that's important for us to remember these silver linings in particular when we're reading Haggai in a moment to understand uh, what the people were thinking and feeling. First, judgment has come to Babylon. Uh, Persia is now the dominant power in the region. Judah has been allowed to return home. Uh, the people who left Babylon, and this is especially important, the people who left Babylon, who are reading and receiving this message, want to be in Jerusalem. And let me show you what I mean with this map. So we have, this is actually a map of the exile. You notice the arrow's going this way. But Babylon is over here. This is where the people were exiled to. And now they have returned home. Our little scale down here, and I'm a social studies teacher, so I love maps and scales and all that stuff. So. Uh, our scale down here is about 300 miles, so we're talking about a 600-mile trip or so, not in a straight line, not in a car, uh, largely walking. Uh, you might, they might have camels, and you think, well, you can ride on a camel. Now, usually the beasts of burden were used for carrying the supplies and the uh, provisions you would need to endure such a journey. Uh, so these people have gone on what is effectively a pilgrimage back to their holy land, or back to their promised land. And anyone under 50 years of age has never actually been there. They are going back on a promise. They are going back on uh, the teachings of their forefathers who spoke of their God of their fathers. And they are again, going there because they want to. These are people who are eager to obey, unlike the Israelites who we might think of before with the murmuring and complaining in the wilderness or the persistent disobedience and the idolatry 
that we've seen in other parts of the Old Testament. But for additional context at this time period, you can look at Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, both fairly short books of history, and if you want to spend some time reviewing those this week, I think it would be uh, edifying for you as well. Uh, but I'm going to read a short excerpt from Ezra. If you want to follow along, we'll be in chapter 4 of Ezra. I'm going to read a few verses, and then we'll um, set the stage for the reading of Haggai. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the remainder of that chapter explains exactly what machinations these uh, locals used. It may on the surface seem like the Israelites were unwilling to reach out to neighbors or accept the invitation of neighbors who were reaching out to them. But when we see how the neighbors respond when the Israelites rebuff their request, it becomes clear that the intentions of the uh, new inhabitants of the land were not sincere. They did not really want to help. Or that if they did want to help, they certainly didn't want to uh, worship God according to his will. They probably wanted to combine worship of our Lord with some of their idols or historic gods that they had brought with them as well. So the leaders were right to reject that help. Uh, some of you have made it notice that we had Jeshua instead of Joshua. That's a, just a translation opinion. So if you see Jeshua, Joshua, same person in the passage. Uh, so concluding in chapter 4, 23 through 24, uh, King Artaxerxes has been informed that these people are rebellious, that they are going to be uh, defiant, hard to rule, and, and that he needs to tighten down the, his hand on them. So he sends a letter. Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshay, the scribe and their associates, these conspirators, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And from this point, got a little behind, I apologize. Good on you for who I did got a Bible out. Uh, the work remained undone for 16 years. So 16 years go by, and they are not touching the work on the Lord's house. And that brings us to Haggai. So turn over to Haggai 1, and we'll read the first chapter together and then go back and analyze that. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, 
consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. Excuse me. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they come, came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. All right, let's take, note, let's take note of who is addressed here. This is a message that was meant for everyone. The message is delivered from the Lord to Haggai. Haggai then targets specifically Zerubbabel, their political leader, and also Joshua, their high priest, their religious leader. So this message is meant for everyone. He's going to speak directly towards the attitudes and actions of the people. And we see the response from the people. It's not just a political response. It's not just a, a empty decree from the governor. This is deeper and more meaningful than that. Now, it becomes clear pretty quickly in this message that the Israelites have their priorities upside down. Yeah? Okay, you caught that. <laughs> and the Lord brings forth an accusation towards the people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild my house. And instead of fiery language, or instead of a, a blatant condemnation, interestingly enough, he just asks a rhetorical question. Is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while my house is in ruins? Though they have spent time building their homes, working on their homes, and neglecting the home of the Lord. I think there's nothing like a good rhetorical question to make you think and ultimately sometimes make you uncomfortable. It's a, it's a great teaching tool to encourage one to reflect. And uh, these people here seem to be the right audience for that approach, as we can judge by what happens later. Now, the Lord provides further evidence regarding this accusation, provides us a list in verse 6 as their ways are challenged. So they've been focusing on a number of issues that they are uh, putting their hands to instead of working on the kingdom. They've sown much. They're eating, they're drinking, they're clothing themselves, they're earning wages and, and doing their jobs. But the outcomes are not the same that they had anticipated. 
they're harvesting little, they don't have enough food, they don't have their fill of drink, they're not warm. The wages they earn are in a bag with holes. I love that, that image there. So, do you ever feel like you can't quite get ahead? That uh, maybe there's not as much in the account at the end of the month as you would hope? Uh, maybe there's not the variety in your uh, cupboard that you would like or, or the types of food that you would enjoy? Well, when we apply our conventional wisdom to that, what do we do? Maybe we pick up an extra shift at work. Maybe we take some overtime. Maybe we uh, take on another job, a part-time job, to supplement our income. I think those feelings that we have are very similar, if not the same, to what this audience was experiencing at the time. Now, look again at the list in green. What are these people fixated on? Earlier, we mentioned their shelter. Now we're talking about food, talking about clothing, talking about just needing a job, earning wages. I mean, aren't these the necessities of life? Aren't these things that we all on some level have to have or need or want? And yet this was still a problem for the Israelites. Their problem was that the basic needs of life had become their idol. And for that reason, the blessings of the Lord were withheld. They wanted to make sure their needs were met. They wanted to make sure they had everything that they needed to be comfortable. And then if there was surplus, if there was more, if they had some extra time, then we will attend to the Lord's work. And that's backwards. So the Israelites have changed. You might remember the problems with idolatry and intermarriage and adopting the traditions of the Canaanites. These are not those same Israelites. This is a totally different generation. This is a generation who may not be putting up idols, but the idols have just become their basic needs. And I think that that's something that's very timely perhaps for us as well. In fact, what they needed to do was serve the Lord first. They needed to make that shift, put God first in their lives, and then he will provide. And he tells them point blank what they will receive and what he'll provide for them in terms of agriculture output and, and having their needs met. And while we don't have those same explicit guarantees, I think that that's important for us to reflect on as well. Because, I mean, that means radical change. It meant radical change for them. When, they're, uh, when their crop yield was too low, well, what do I need to do? I need to, I need to plant more seeds, right? I need to go out again. I need to work late. I need to get up early. And God's something, no, you don't need to do that. You need to put my work first, and I'll take care of the rest. And I think that that was difficult for them since it's a trap they fell into. I think it's difficult for us as well. Uh, it's easy for us to let those concerns of, of work and uh, the necessities of life get in the way, perhaps, of serving our Lord. And I think it's something that we can all spend some time reflecting on, not just this morning, but I hope that this stays with you in, in the days ahead and gives you something to, to digest spiritually. So in verses 7 through 12, we see what repentance meant. These people, just like us, they were called to repent. For them, repenting meant uh, rebuilding the temple. I, I tell my students I feel bad just giving slides with words all the time, so I did find a picture. Fortunately, cameras didn't exist. Uh, this was painted by a Frenchman, so I, I'm definitely pronouncing this wrong, but Gustave Doré. The uh, rebuilding of the temple has begun. It's a 19th century piece. Uh, you might notice in our text they were sent to get wood particularly, and here they're moving stone, but I really wanted to include a picture. so. I think it illustrates the broader idea, if not the, the detail in the moment. So, the Israelites have been confronted. They've been provided with evidence, and they've been told what they need 
to do. Now, how do we respond when we're confronted with our sin? How do we respond when people challenge us and, and tell us we're wrong? You, get that, you feel that prickly feeling on the back of your neck, your pulse increase a little bit, get a little warm. So, well, um, but, you know, I at least do this. I'm sorry, I'm not used to that. Uh, and others, uh, you know, I'm not as bad as this guy. I do the right thing most of the time. We get defensive, or we tend to get defensive. I know I tend to get defensive, and I'm going to preach it myself a little bit. Uh, our first inclination, our first instinct is often to try to get out of trouble, to try to avoid it. But what do we see from the Israelites here? And I think this is beautiful. They get to work. They take the reproof, they take the, the correction, and they just do it. So again, this is why I say that this, this generation of Israelites is very different from the Israelites we've encountered previously. So we get into the second message uh, in verses 13, 14, and 15. See, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant, and they get to work. And I think this is an important point just doctrinally. Uh, sometimes when we talk about the idea of free will and God's sovereignty and, and trying to understand those things, uh, you may hear someone make the argument here that God has circumvented the will of the people and he is uh, using his omniscient or his, uh, his omni, it's om, which om, omniscient, omniscient's all-knowing, omnipresent is everywhere, omni, what's the other omni? Somebody help me out. Omnipotent, that's the one. Thank you, thank you. Omnipotent, he's using his omnipotence as kind of a puppeteer and forcing the people to engage in this action. But that is not what's happening here. And I just wanted to draw your attention to that so we didn't uh, possibly draw incorrect conclusions from the text. Notice that this passage ended, or began with the first message, with the people being accused first. Then they repented, and then after they repented, that is when God stirs them. He is helping them take action. He is helping his people reach the goals that they have set for themselves as servants in his kingdom. All right, so the question now becomes, how does this apply to me? Now, how do I connect with these people? They were, they were challenged to build a temple. Do we need to run to Lowe's during the lunch break and, and come back and add another wing to the back of the building here? No, that's, that's obviously not the application that's meant for us. In fact, in, Stephen, in Acts 7, Stephen tells us during his sermon that God does not dwell in houses made with hands. And I would, if I was preaching chapter 2, we would talk more about that and how it wasn't really about the temple uh, for what the people were, the work that the people were doing. It was really about making God a priority. So what does this mean for us? We're living 2,500 year, 2, years later on a different continent, what can you take away from this? You're not called to build a temple. Well, there are four things I'd like you to think about and take from this lesson, I hope. First off, concern for your basic necessities can become an idol. Trying to take care of yourself can become an idol. Trying to make sure your needs are met can become an idol. If you let those things get in front of your relationship with God, it is a sin. And I'm speaking to you as a person with two careers and a lot of obligations. I'm, I'm preaching it myself as I think about these things. Uh, so I hope that you'll reflect with me in the days ahead. Now, secondly, I would encourage you to think of yourselves as a modern remnant. If we look at it from the perspective of mankind, there are not many of us here. 
you saw the traffic on the way here if you were driving around 9. Uh, it would have been a very different picture tomorrow if you were driving those same roads at 9 in the morning. So in many ways, we are a remnant. Uh, we've engaged in a very small, very short pilgrimage, so to speak, to get here. Uh, parallel that to the pilgrimage of the Israelites coming back from Babylon. At this time, they had a much more difficult journey. And in spite of their dedication, in spite of their motivation, in spite of the difficulty they were willing to endure, they were still fallible. And if those people were willing to endure much more than us, I posit to you that we are fallible as well. We are motivated, but we are still vulnerable. So don't grow complacent in the fact that you're part of that remnant. There's still room for us to struggle, and there's still room for us to grow. Third point, when you are rebuked, try to resist that urge to defend yourself at first. Listen, think, and consider. Now, some, some of us have been falsely accused. I bet many of you have been falsely accused at one time or another in your life, if not all of us. Uh, but give people the benefit of the doubt, especially when you know it's people that love you. When it's people that are, that are here, that are part of our church family, if they're correcting you, uh, I think we can afford to give each other the benefit of the doubt, give a hearing, give some reflection, and think on that. And if they're right, repent. Change. Then finally, the last thing I would leave you with, the fourth point, is the Lord helps his people in his purpose. Now, I am not an expert on the Holy Spirit. I am not able to articulate uh, or communicate to you intelligently how he works in our modern era. Uh, there are wiser men more prepared to have that conversation with you than I am. Uh, but I believe that the Lord still works in our daily lives. The Lord is a part of our life, and he will help us accomplish the goals that glorify him. So I think that we can take that same encouragement and, and perhaps be stirred up in a similar way to the people in Haggai's time. So this morning, I've challenged you to consider your ways. I've asked you to think about your priorities. Where are your priorities today? Now, some of you may want some time to digest on this. Some of you have, uh, may have thought of some changes you need to make in your life, and, and you're already prayerfully considering that. Some of you may realize you need to make a change, but you're not sure what to do. And we would be very happy to help you with that. So this morning, if you are in need of prayer, if you you know, I don't have all the answers, but the first, thought, the first step in that is going to be taking our concerns to God. So uh, this morning, if you feel like you need to get your priorities in order, uh, just a moment when we're led in our invitation song, I would encourage you to come forward. And then there may be some of you, and there are a number of faces that I don't know. Uh, there may be some of you that have never made God the priority in your life, that have never put on Christ in baptism, uh, and have not had your sins washed away by the cleansing power of his blood. And if that is you, if you need to make God a priority for the first time, uh, we have the water prepared, and, and we would be thrilled to celebrate with you this morning as you're immersed into Christ. Uh, whatever your need may be, if you have any need, please come forward as we're led in our invitation song. Is it for me, dear Savior, thy glory and thy 